welcome to Future Horizons, the Tempest podcast. I'm your host, Sevi Watmo. Innovation on the Tempest programme is laying the foundations of aerospace technology for those who will follow far into the future. It's realistic to state that the work being carried out right now will have an impact on aerospace innovation for the next 100 years. But how can we quantify the value of the Tempest programme today? After an independent evaluation, PwC has issued a report on their estimation of the programme's value to industry. So what are the most striking features of the report and what can we learn from its findings? Here to share their views are Jonathan Hawkins, Director of Policy ADS, Andrew Kinneber, Director General Make UK Defence, and Neil Ross, Head of Policy Tech UK. Coming to you, Andrew, first, what was the single most striking highlight of this report for you? Um, thank you. I, I think probably the most striking element for me was really the, the creation of a whole generation of, of new newly skilled people into the industry. I think um, Make UK has done many studies in terms of uh, looking at apprenticeships, T-levels, graduate trainee, that sort of thing. I think Tempest has a real opportunity to to almost sort of reset the entire, um, certainly the entire defence economy and and in many ways to reset the, the sort of engineering sector within the UK. So for me, that would certainly be the highlight for, 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 from my perspective, would be seeing a whole new generation coming through, um, tackling some of the, the many issues that manufacturing and engineering are facing in terms of um, a sort of aging workforce. And I think sort of turbocharging the, the adoption of, of new technology and new skills into manufacturing and engineering. So that, that's the, the thing that really struck me in the report. Neil, you're Head of Policy at Tech UK and no doubt part of the work that you do is turbocharging the adoption of digitisation. What was most important to you in this report? Do you know what I find most striking is uh, in just eight years, the report was saying from the uh, announcement of the Tempest project up to when it starts in 2026, it's going to start generating 2,000 jobs a year, I think most of the supply chain. And that means in eight years, you've got a number of people engaged in some of the most innovative action possible. And that's really the thing that helps drive uh, innovation in the tech sector, not just in the tech sector where it cuts across with defense, but also more broadly in the wider economy, when you've got a whole generation of people engaging in some of the most cutting edge technology, developing digital skills with clear spillover effects. And that's just gonna have a transformative effect in the UK throughout the whole life cycle, uh, which I think runs for nearly, uh, you know, just shy of 30 years. Jonathan, do you see there's potential to see a transformation of the industry in terms of what you've seen in this report? Yeah, I think for me, the most compelling piece is similar to Neil, the analysis around the whole overall benefit of Combat Air, you know, the £100 billion of contribution uh, Combat Air activities and Tempest will make over the next 30 years. And that in turn, you know, the strategic role of defence and how, how, some, how that can make um, the difference to our economy and future growth prospects, which builds on all of the incredibly important programmes that the industry is currently engaged on, uh, particularly given where we find ourselves as a country at this cusp of recovery from the pandemic, but also an opportunity for making an impact across the whole of the UK and really answering that call from government around levelling up. And that sense of responsiveness to change, responsiveness to a fl- an environment in flux uh, seems to be at the heart of the recovery and Part of that is obviously going to be a digital revolution that's touching on the manufacturing world right now, but it's also shaping our armed forces. Neil, do you see evidence that the Tempest programme is creating the right framework to support this? 
Absolutely. I think that that comes from the project itself. I'm not sort of aware of a, such an ambitious single platform that takes digital and electronic warfare and tools like data and artificial intelligence right at its core. And that means that throughout the design and manufacturing process, those kind of skills will be bled into the process. And it means there'll be real innovation at the boundaries of different sectors. So reading through the report, it was really interesting to see how uh, the different manufacturers are pulling in uh, insights from the video games industry using tools like digital twins, which helps you design things in a lab before testing them out in real life uh, and deploying new innovative products like using AR and VR, that's augmented reality and virtual reality in the design and testing process. And it's all these different tools and techniques and skill sets which will be you know, pioneered in the Tempest project, but will have so many applications for so many industries afterwards. Jonathan, um, Neil has touched on some really exciting areas of innovation going on right now that are still um, growing, still in their early stages. Is that going to affect the policies that you shape at ADS? Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the key themes, I guess, that you're kind of picking up with Neil there was around the future of manufacturing and, you know, how do we uh, as industry adapt to the technology um, changes, the, the kind of the, the platforms we're looking at in, in the defence. And, you know, examples such as the Factory of the Future, which is kind of mentioned in the report, they're clearly important in moving manufacturing um, forward. Uh, and particularly, I guess, policy around how do we encourage the skills um, that are needed to, to meet this kind of demand for, for new technologies really important and you know, collaboration, encouraging that with organisations such as the High Value Manufacturing Catapult Centre, you know, where the development of new ideas, processes, technology between companies and sectors will be really key um, to providing access to commercial opportunities for SMEs, but also raising the UK's game more broadly. Andrew, when SMEs see this report, how do you think they're going to respond? Because you're someone with a deep understanding, not only of their aspirations, but the challenges they're facing as well. I think some, some will be very excited um, and, and be desperate to be part of, the, part of the, the excitement and the programme going forward. I think, to be honest, some will be, will be deeply worried. And, and I think um, this is a, a genuine opportunity, a sort of once in a generation um, type opportunity for, for SMEs to embrace this new technology. And, and as the guys were saying earlier on about augmented reality, virtual reality, factory of the future, bringing all of those things into the SME community, I guess, more aggressively, because if, if they don't, they're simply going to be left behind. And if, if, we're, if we're fighting so hard to, to, to develop the SME um, community in the UK, particularly in defence, and I know that all my colleagues from, from ADS and Make UK are equally, uh, from, I beg your pardon, from ADS, um, are equally passionate about that and driving the SME agenda forward. So I think I think the ones that are already have already invested and are bringing graduates in and are really kind of enmeshing themselves in the new technology and the sort of new economy um, are probably really excited and and really want to get involved. Um, the more traditional ones, this perhaps is a is a wake up call for them to really think about that investment. And certainly, we we see you know many of our members are are, are hugely engaged in in the whole sort of new technology uh, revolution and in the fourth uh, fourth industrial revolution. But I think the the ones that that are perhaps lagging behind, this is an opportunity. This report actually is a is a really nice summary of of the kind of technology that they need to be investing in, and indeed the kind of people that they need to be either bringing in or or growing. Um, in, in their existing team. So I think, 
yeah, a mixed bag, I would say. Um, you know, really exciting, but equally, you've got to get got to get on your on your toes, SMEs as well. And I think you've hit on a really important point because with any opportunity you get this twin uh, response of aspiration and you know you really want to go for it you want to uh, grasp anything coming your way but on the other hand you've got the anxiety well how do you go about that how do you get your foot in the door how do you showcase yourself and staying with you Andrew how from a trade perspective does an SME get into the Tempest program and how can Tempest make it easier for them to do so? That's a, it's a good question. I think Tempest certainly, uh, they've certainly made a good start. And I think, um, and, and I would say this, of course, but I think that the trade associations can play a big role in, in terms of helping um, helping the Tempest team to to meet uh, suitable, in particular SMEs, but mid-tiers as well, to, to meet suitable companies. Um, and I think we can create the environment that, that makes that uh, more, more possible and, and easier for them. So I think there's that side of things. I think um, the the other side really is is um, I suppose um, it's using the existing programs that, that are out there. So things like, um, for instance, Made Smarter in the Northwest, um, which is looking at the fourth fourth industrial revolution and digitization of the factory. I think perhaps if Tempest were able to integrate themselves with some of those programs, um, I think that would really help to um, I suppose. To some extent, reduce the confusion, um, and and not just for SMEs, perhaps all of us to some extent, because there's such a profusion of of of, uh, of assistance, uh, but it can be a bit piecemeal. And I think if if Tempest were able to plug into a number of the existing initiatives, um, and and as my colleagues were mentioning about things like high value manufacturing, using the existing resources, not reinventing the wheel, but use them as as to their fullest extent. It, it will reduce the noise in, in the market and, and simplify things for, for the SMEs um, and hopefully you know, help them to really drive forward with the technology that Tempest obviously needs at every level of the supply chain. Neil, your organisation does a lot of hard work in terms of democratising access to digital expertise and uh, Andrew has, has really shared the landscape that could be very complex of support resources that are available. How are you approaching this challenge? So it's, a lot of this is about building partnerships, particularly when you have um, a big project like this. It will have lots of partnerships across the UK. I think there's a good list in the report about the different university prospect, uh, uh, partnerships that are set up there, as well as those that it's doing with SMEs already. And to ensure that we get the spill out of that into communities, into areas that perhaps don't have, or not have not had historically the access to, to digital skills or high skilled manufacturing jobs that have happened in the past. That needs to be led, not just by trade associations like ourselves, but also working in partnership with colleges, local enterprise partnerships, um, other universities to really kind of bring as many people into this to ensure that everybody thinks that they can have a job in this space. But then again, this is what why this project and why Tempest is such a, a useful platform for this because it's, it's very exciting. You know, this is a, a, a sort of a really interesting, uh, cool fighter jet platform that's bringing all these new technologies on boards and that can really inspire lots of people to think about getting involved in STEM. And because of the, the lifetime of the project, it's something that will hopefully inspire kind of generations of graduates. Jonathan, uh, this multi-generational approach, how do you um, 
scene, do a bit of scene setting when you're putting forward policies or when you're lobbying? How do you position something like Tempest? How do you perceive it at ADS? I think in, in, in a sense, the, the, the kind of prizes that the report is pointing towards is, is a really valuable way of looking at it. So when you look at the potential value of the programme, uh, for national prosperity over the next 30 years. I think Neil kind of mentioned a couple of the numbers, 26 billion direct contributions to the UK economy, for example, uh, and more than a quarter of the combat air value generated in the UK by Tempest Partners is contained in this one programme. So really highlighting the value and actually looking at what prizes can be achieved from um, that investment and, and the programme going forward is really hugely important to outline to policymakers how our, how our sector, how defence can play a role in the kind of the future shape of the economy. And what will be particularly important uh, to communicate is, is around maximising the value to the national prosperity and the involvement of SMEs, as um, Andrew has mentioned. You know, the implementation of a procurement pr approach that was set out in the Defence and Security Industrial Strategy, so stepping away from competition by default and putting greater emphasis on overall domestic value, uh, can really help to achieve this. And I think Tempest has got that, that capability and, and the prize are very clear, really. Um, set out in the report. So I think the, the sales pitch almost is, 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 is a really straightforward one. It's about realising those opportunities and demonstrating to our, our friends in government and in parliament just how important that is to the future of, of the UK. Neil, what are the hot topics that you're seeing coming through from the companies you're dealing with right now uh, that would really find that they would have elements that would excite them about this new opportunity? Yeah, so I think one of the things, when you think about the, the technology sector or the tech industry in the UK, we're very fortunate in the UK that we, we have the largest tech industry in Europe. If you think about how much investment that's gone into uh, the UK tech industry over the last five years, it's been more than Germany and France combined, and then some. And the thing is, the UK tech industry is all about innovation at the borders. You know, everyone talks about the UK success in fintech. But there's also enormous success in green tech and artificial intelligence and a huge other number of areas. But historically, quite a lot of tech success has come from other industries uh, and military technology and defence projects have been a big foundational stone of that. So everything from voice assistance to the touchscreen that you're using on your phone probably right now to listen to this podcast, as well as even the Internet, have, have, have spilled out into the tech sector from defence projects. So how we ensure that all of the different technological capabilities that are being invested in through Tempest, whether it's radar, energy management, new advanced manufacturing and materials. How do we ensure there's a pipeline from those projects into the wider private and public sector for people to come up with new ideas and spin outs from those? And that's really where you'll drive, you know, some of the biggest tech successes. And historically, even some of the world's largest tech companies have come from that route. So the sky is really the limit, uh, if you pardon the pun, uh, if we get those partnerships right. Andrew, uh, do you get the sense that anything you invest in an SME will be repaid many times over? I actually do. I, I, I mean, obviously, if you invest in the right things. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think this, this is a good blueprint. This report is a good blueprint in terms of understanding the kind of technologies that, that the SME uh, community needs to invest in if it hasn't already. So I think absolutely. I, I think as well, it's interesting to, to think sort of beyond just this Tempest program, as, as Neil mentioned, in terms of the spin-off into, into the civil market. Um, and I think, I guess, from, from my perspective, if you look at things like Apple, you know, they've been innovating very, very rapidly. And the military, the military defense market tends to move rather more slowly. But something like Tempest is, 
is a chance to leapfrog really much of what's happening in the civil market. So I think that's very exciting. But the SMEs, it, I do think it will pay dividends. And I think not just on the Tempest programme, but I think if the government is sincere, and I believe it is in its wish to to globalise Britain and, and for us to play a much bigger role on the world stage, um, obviously we're already the, the second largest exporter of defence equipment in in the world. Um, I think having an SME community that, that is really well equipped for this very leading edge sixth generation fast jet um, is only going to pay dividends both for, for Tempest, obviously, but for other other UK programmes, but probably for, for some SMEs, more importantly, in the export market. And that need to level up and to build back better, it seems to rest on our ability as a country to come together and ensure that across the regions uh, there is attainment. And do you see any proof that Tempest is seeding new innovation hubs that may not have existed otherwise? That question for you, Neil. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the report is does this in a lot of detail. In fact, they dedicate a whole section to how it's supporting, you know, what you might call the sort of levelling up agenda. And I mean, this is something which the government has, to its credit, delivered really strongly with businesses everywhere and business groups. I'd be very sure that uh, Andrew and Jonathan and their own groups have their own kind of levelling up strategies, their own approach to trying to drive innovation across the country. And Tempest is really kind of in that tradition. You know, they had a list of university partnerships they're engaging with, which I think covered almost every region of the UK. Uh, and those wouldn't have happened without, without this kind of project. And I think another thing as well, just to go back to the sheer ambition of this particular project and the real kind of multi-dimension multi of cutting edge technologies means that these projects wouldn't have happened if you'd had a less ambitious project or uh, contracted out in a different way. So there's a strong role that Tempest is playing, which is almost unique. And Andrew, sometimes the SMEs are demonstrating their ambition just through the sheer number of roles that anyone employed within an SME will will be able to carry out because it's no longer the case that you get people working within a single discipline. You can get multidisciplinary engineers. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a thing of beauty, isn't it? When you look into an SME and you see the MD as the as the sales director and the, the quality director, perhaps, and then the engineering, the operations manager is the engineering manager as well. There's, there's a lot of, as you say, sort of multi-hatting within the SME community, which I guess brings its own challenges in, in terms of um, the sheer breadth of, of, uh, of new tech and, and new skills to be, to be brought through. So I think it, it can be very challenging for SMEs, but equally, what you end up with is is a very complete engineer or a very complete um, perhaps scientist or or R and D person, because they're they're looking at all aspects of the design of a particular subsystem or or component. Um, I think if if I may just touch back on on the the apprenticeship and training piece and and leveling up, I think we we've done a lot of work in Make UK looking at apprenticeships and and T levels and the like. I think we would really like to see the government, you know, on the back of things like the Tempest program, really step up and, and properly, properly review and, and listen very carefully to, to the SME community and, and indeed to bigger businesses like the partners on, on Tempest and, and really try to quickly um, sort out the apprenticeship levy and, and the T levels and to, to make sure that they're fully supporting things like Tempest. I, I think it's so important if 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 the, if there's too much niggling in the system, that's probably a very poorly poor poor way of putting it. 
there's too much niggle in the system, it will discourage that investment. It will discourage that recruitment of graduates into SMEs um, because sometimes they're quite hesitant to do that. Um, but actually, that can leapfrog them in terms of their, their skill set and, and their understanding of new technology. So I think we would, and, and I, I believe my colleagues, uh, Neil and Jonathan, would agree probably on this, that we'd just like to see some tidying up of the, of, of the T levels and of the apprenticeship levy as well. Jonathan, are there any other areas you think could be developed to offer more support beyond uh, the apprenticeship uh, situation that Andrew's outlined? I think that the kind of, I guess, I was going to come on to apprentices as well, actually, but I guess the, the, the point around technology and investment and innovation, that's a really key catalyst for, for levelling up, for, for meeting the government's ambition to be, for the UK to be a science superpower. So anything the government can do to encourage investment in R&D will only have an even greater multiplier effect um, through Tempest and beyond. It was really interesting, the report outlined the spillovers to other sectors, whether that's um, using technology in the civil space and you know, the, the, the kind of, I guess, research around um, electrification and high temperature um, propulsion, feeding into kind of the, the aerospace sector, civil aerospace, aerospace sector around um, reducing the climate impacts of, of aircraft more generally. You know, that's a really, really key point. And, and if I come back to skills and apprenticeships for a moment, you know, industry is a major investor in skills and apprenticeships because we know that is the best way um, to equip our workforces. And, and Andrew's kind of really eloquently talked about the need for government to support apprentices and put the right, um, the right process and mechanism in place so that industry can in, come, in, come in behind that and invest. And for young people in the major regional centres for Tempest in particular, you know, that really offers an unrivaled opportunity to build a secure and rewarding career in advanced design and manufacturing. And the apprentices of today and those who join the Tempest partners and suppliers into the future have a real opportunity to become actual leaders in our industry and in developing kind of this programme and the next one uh, which might follow it. Indeed, and there are a lot of business leaders that are now in senior positions that are former apprentices and if you're a smaller SME, it's more of a consideration taking that on financially. And so really, in a sense, if you want to amplify the success of the UK supply chain, you've got to find a, a way to create a route by which they can not only sell to their main customer, but sell in, in lots of other ways and, and repurpose that technology, but also repurpose their talent because you'll have an apprentice starting in day one that could be a project manager and then right up to, to senior management level. So it's a repurposing of talent, a repurposing of technology. How can we facilitate that, Andrew? It's. I think it's a really good point, and it, it's. If I if I look at the sort of the growth of membership within Make UK Defence for a second, um, it's interesting at the moment when you look at the downturn in in the automotive sector and in oil and gas. That's that's driving some of the growth into defence because companies are are looking at uh, at looking at at defence as as a as an area of growth, obviously because of the government funding settlement, um, but also as as a really good way of using some of their precision engineering and, and their their skills from from other areas. So if we look at something like oil and gas and, and the, the ability of an oil and gas specialist to, to perhaps handle very high pressure systems, that kind of thing, you're you're bringing new technology from other sectors. But I think Tempest most certainly is going to have a spin-off going the other way. So I think it, it will be very interesting as, as the what, what is a very vibrant sector in the UK at the moment, defence, um, how 
Tempest and, and the other big programs such as the, the, the uh, fleet solid support ships and the, the, the frigates and destroyers that are coming through um, through the, the Royal Navy uh, renewal program and um, just how that will impact the companies and, and again I suppose it, it's across all, all size of companies but particularly the SMEs and the mid-tiers and actually how they will take work that they do on Tempest and bring it back into, for instance, oil and gas, automotive, um, and and I think perhaps you know really advanced engineering techniques. Uh, it will be very interesting to see if um, Tempest. Um, I know we've talked about turbocharging before, but but sort of boosts up things like additive manufacturing and and the the further development of composites and perhaps bringing in more sustainable composites using natural fibers, that kind of thing. And then how that will drive back out into the into the civil market from from the military side, and I guess we're going back to to what Neil was talking about about that whole you know defence driving innovation again. Jonathan, uh, you know, Andrew's described the rich uh, landscape where you can repurpose technology in different settings. But how do you break down barriers between industries and, and break down barriers in terms of people's perceptions of how they could use and then reuse their technology? That's a really good question. I think the, you know, the, the UK has a very vibrant, um, I guess, technology base. You know, Neil's really kind of talked very clearly about the kind of the digital, digital and tech Kind of sector, um, you know, as ADS we represent aerospace, defence, uh, security, and space sectors, and all of them have a, a really key role to play in in driving forward, I guess, a shared shared agenda around innovation um, and working together to 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 grow, um, but also to share ideas and collaborate. And and Andrew's given some really great examples of how that can happen, um, and involving SMEs and and the cross collaboration, cross fertilisation of ideas. And technology is one of those key things which, which can drive that forward. For an enormous programme like Tempest, there are certain things you'd expect. So you'd expect them to develop skills, you'd expect them to do uh, STEM outreach, you'd expect them to develop the expertise of existing employees and to look at a multi-generational uh, approach to any kind of development. And, you know, that will include uh, forward-facing tech like quantum technology that we're, we're just starting to explore right now. When you go through that report, do you see any evidence that the programme's going above and beyond what you might expect them to do? I'm going to you, Jonathan, on that. Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the areas we've touched on, particularly around skills and apprenticeships um, and the opportunity uh, for young people into the future. And this is, this is a really long programme and, and it kind of over the next 30 years, the report kind of reflects on that. And there are huge opportunities. And I think, you know, I guess one of the beauties about being in industry rather than government is we can take that kind of longer term view and demonstrate the, the value um, of, of the programmes that we're working on across an, a kind of a number of years where government sometimes has, has to focus politically on, on its short term objectives. But I think the, the, kind of, the kind of test really here is how can we sustain that and move that going forwards and have this as a lasting kind of uh, impact on, on the UK. And I think... <clears throat> The key, the key outputs of the report really kind of do show that. Neil, when you look at that report, what gives you uh, a grounds for optimism in terms of the digitisation of the UK? Do you know, there was, a, there was two, I mean, there was a huge amount that jumped out of the report, but two things in particular. 
I think the focus on 5G was really interesting and particularly the role that it can play in, in boosting supply chains. It's something we've seen in lots of other areas and have been calling forth. So to see it actively put into practice by the Tempest program is fantastic. Uh, as well as the focus on longer term technologies, like you mentioned quantum computing. That's an area where the UK really has an opportunity to be you know, a, a true world leader in a technology that's likely to have uh, you know, truly transformative effects across the entire economy. So the more projects that begin to scope out and focus on the commercialization and use of that technology, the better. Uh, overall, I thought the Tempest project is sort of unique and special because it really does double down on some of the areas where the UK is already a true world leader. Uh, the focus on uh, digital technology and electronic systems is one where the UK is a leader and it's investing heavily in that. Aerospace, another area where the UK is a, a top uh, world performer, where it's investing heavily in that as well. And advanced manufacturing, another area where the UK is a world leader, again, heavily investing in. So there are a huge number of opportunities through the, the unique demands and concoction of this particular project, which I think has an opportunity to really push the boundaries and go well beyond uh, what might usually come through in a, in, a, in a different kind of style or technology platform that uh, could be pr produced. Andrew, finally from you, what did you see as being the most exciting area of potential transformation that could come from the Tempest programme? Um, I think, that as, as Neil much more eloquently than I can um, explained, I think it's, it's the acceleration of, of many of the different uh, sort of fledgling technologies that we're seeing today. Um, coming through on on the back of Tempest. I mean, I have to admit, when I read the report, it, it I was slightly um, slightly taken aback at how quickly it had moved since twenty eighteen. Um, it's really gathered pace incredibly quickly. So I think I think it's it's trying to um, it's it's of course moving these technologies forward. I think one thing I would say is that we need to be a little bit cautious and we need to be careful that that the the ability for uh, us in the UK to manage the supply chain in, in as sophisticated a way as the technology that we're actually developing, it, it needs to be considered, I think, in terms of the coordination of, of, uh, of standards and of sort of innovation. And I think um, one thing that we, we, we need to be a little bit careful of is that, that we make sure the supply chain is suitably integrated and the sophistication of the management of the supply chain is, is, uh, is considered as well as all the technology coming through. So I think sort of looking at, you know, making sure companies are, are in inverted commas fit for defense um, and are perhaps, uh, you know, fitting in with, with things like the JOSCAR database, the, 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 the uh, approvals um, database um, is equally important or, or perhaps certainly you know, nearly as important as the technology that's coming through. Jonathan, Neil and Andrew, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Today we brought together some of the UK's top innovators who are creating state-of-the-art technology for the Tempest pilot. This technology is transforming the role of the pilot and their airborne environment, helping to equip a Tempest future combat air system for a rapidly evolving and complex operating environment in the future. Imagine the controls and dials of a traditional aircraft cockpit being replaced by augmented reality, virtual reality displays and a headset which acts as a wearable cockpit. This wearable cockpit projects the cockpit controls directly inside the visor of the pilot's helmet. 
The headset connects the pilot to a virtual assistant and operators on the ground who can give live updates with a speed that will allow them to make split-second decisions in challenging situations. This is what technologists at the heart of Tempest development are working on today. The idea behind the wearable cockpit is to be able to present the right data to the pilot at the right time to allow them to complete the mission. And the technology being developed doesn't stop there. As the human being at the centre of the human-machine interface, uh, the pilot is constantly being monitored with readings of their psychological and physiological well-being. This can start to determine when the pilot becomes overloaded, so the aircraft can take some of that workload to allow the human to concentrate on the core task at hand. Before we join the rest of the panel to learn more, Susie Broadbent, Human Factors Manager, BAE Systems, is going to take us on a VIP tour inside the cockpit of a Tempest aircraft. As I climb into the cockpit, there's actually no displays in front of me. I've got my traditional hands-on throttle and stick, my HOTAS, to be able to control things, but I can't actually see any displays in front of me until I put the helmet on. Once I put the helmet on, I can start to look around and see what's around me. I can see the real world, but I can also see a lot of information augmented on top of it, giving me that SA that I need. As I take off, this information continues to be there along with my horizon line and other important flight information as I look around, but I've got that immediate situation awareness of where everybody is. From my wingman, I can hear his comms and I've got directional 3D audio in my cockpit, so that immediately cues me into where he is in relation to me in space. As I look around the outside world, there's lots of information out there, but because of the eye tracker in my helmet, when I look around, it only highlights the information I'm looking at, so I get the overall picture, but only detailed information about the things I'm actually looking at, so I'm not overloaded with information. I can see tracks and targets overlaid on the outside world, so I know exactly where they are, and I can look down into the cockpit, where I've now got virtual reality displays showing me what would traditionally be showed on a large area display. As I'm entering hostile territory, I can see a missile engagement zone over to my left, the virtual assistant makes note of this and begins to replan the mission to avoid this. The virtual assistant knows my overall goals, my ultimate goals of what I want to achieve on this mission, and therefore proposes a replan. I can interrogate this either visually via my 3D display, which allows me to see everything and where it is in the battle space, and also shows the effects of the timeline so I can judge which are the appropriate actions to take. Before action in this change of plan, I can quickly check the state of everybody else in my flight by checking out their physiological data. Within our flight suits, there's built-in heart rate monitors, an EEG within the helmet, and eye tracking, which allows me to make judgments about their psychological state and their workload, so that I can determine whether it's an appropriate course of action to take. Within the cockpit, there are multiple ways provided to interact with the system. I can either look at the accept button and press the button to accept it, or I can reach out and touch it, just as you would a touchscreen. I accept the virtual assistant's proposal and that information is immediately shared between the flight, allowing us to rapidly replan. The aircraft is essentially flying itself and therefore takes me onto the new route. Rather than looking at the displays, I can ask the aircraft to provide me information as opposed to new time on target and information like that, which allows me free to continue to monitor the displays around the cockpit. I receive acceptances back from the loyal wingmen who are flying with us, the unmanned aerial vehicles we're controlling from within our Tempest cockpit, that they're all happy with the new plan. 
Having the autonomy carry out this replanning has saved us valuable time within the cockpit. It's also allowed us to see the impact immediately on what this is going to do to our time on target and mission effectiveness. This results in a successful mission and it's home for tea and medal. Well, Susie is joining us now along with Emma Ullman, Principal Engineer at MBDA, and Jonathan Smith, Head of Capability Major Air Programs Leonardo, to help us understand more about the remarkable technology that's going to help the pilot think and act in ways that have never been possible before. So Susie, the, the twin seaters of the past really have been replaced with a single seat aircraft, but the pilot will be far from alone. Can you outline just how they're going to be given virtual assistance? Certainly. So um, as you've mentioned, the workload we're expecting on the operator is going to increase a lot. There's going to be a lot more information in the battle space. So it does seem almost counterintuitive to go from two operators down to one. Um, but this is where the autonomy and the automation can really step in and help us. Um, we've done a lot of work looking at the advances in autonomy and artificial intelligence and trying to understand um, where that could take some of the pressure off the operator. Things that the machines are better at than us, such as like um, crunching lots of data really fast and things like that. Things that machines have a better capability of the human. Therefore, we can free up the human to be able to do a lot more of the critical decision making and the things that we know that humans are good at from our studies in psychology. You know, we, un we understand more about the capabilities of the human and the capabilities of the machine. And as you say, they can work together. So this idea of human autonomy teaming and then working together as a team is very much coming to the fore. Um, the notion of the virtual assistant, as you mentioned, is how they communicate and how they share who's doing what, because it could be flexible depending on what scenario they're in. Sometimes the operator might be well within their capability of handling what's going on, whereas they might want to task things, much as they would have done the traditional backseater or a wingman or whatever. And Emma, uh, although the virtual assistant is going to be right there with the pilot, it really is the wingman for the pilot, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so back in the days, as you say, of the twin-seater combat aircraft, the pilot would be supported with this high workload by the navigator who would take on some of the tasks, including identifying, designating targets for engagement um, and providing details on when to release weapons against those targets. In the Tempest cockpit, we have the autonomy take, uh, technology taking on some of those activities. So we can have the autonomy busy working away in the background, rapidly analysing the threat environment and all of the various sources of information available to it and then providing a concise and meaningful set of information back to the pilot um, or even making recommendations on their um, options to proceed. And as Susie said, with the autonomy taking on a lot of this prep work, the pilot is freed up to focus on their own critical tasks set. And Jonathan, you're working very closely uh, with the partners to really get the balance right, aren't you, on, in terms of what you give to the pilot and what you assign to the virtual assistant? Yeah, absolutely right. Um, I think one of the keys of Tempest is because Tempest will be handling a lot of the details that would have previously been handled um, by a crew or by, or by a pilot on, on his or her own, um, what, what, what that will enable is pilots to do multiple tasks simultaneously uh, and in a coordinated way. So for example, a pilot uh, in a Tempest aircraft can simultaneously provide targeting support for guided weapons, deceive adversary threats, scan the ground for target objectives, or complete intelligence surveillance reconnaissance type of roles. And, and all of that is critically enabled by the uh, 
the onboard computing, the onboard assistant, the virtual assistant, and, and the combat cloud that the Tempest will exist in. And Jonathan, the, the Tempest aircraft sensors are sucking in hundreds of times more data than a compact aircraft ever has before. So what will the pilot actually be doing with all this data? Yeah, so that's, that's a very interesting point. So, so you know, Tempest will be collecting a city's worth, in inverted commas, of data over time spans measured in, in seconds for the aircraft. And put bluntly, the pilot will be using that data or that information to analyze situations and make decisions based upon that analysis and then take appropriate actions. And like I've said before, the beauty of Tempest is that pilots will be able to analyze, decide and act faster and with more confidence than has ever been possible before. The faster element is going to be enabled by information collection at longer ranges, automatic prioritization of that information for the pilot and delivery of alerts or updates to the pilot that are tailored to the current tactical situation and context that the pilot is, is sat in. The confidence element to, to enable that more rapid decision making uh, is going to come from multiple types of sensing uh, from multiple sources, confirming and checking that the information that, that is being provided is rich and holistic uh, and, and that the pilot gets a, a fuller, richer, deeper picture. Fundamentally, the Tempest will be a data and decision hub. Uh, that enables a pilot to think and act faster than the adversary, giving it a battle-winning advantage, effectively. Susie, really, all the work that you've done looking into brain science is feeding into how you're going to lay out this data, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, we, we started to look at the use of uh, what's known as psychophysiological monitoring um, on previous generations of aircraft to start to understand, could we objectively measure a pilot's workload? Um, traditionally, we've relied on subjective um, feedback from the pilots, which is great, but being able to actually analyse and see it real time, um, the data that comes off some of these wearables, um, is, is great. So the ability to be able to understand what the pilot's going through at various times and maybe to um, make the autonomy more adaptive to the situations. So it's not that the autonomy will always do a certain task. It's when the pilot may be overloaded with other things that the autonomy can step in. And we can understand that by getting the readings from the pilot, using an eye tracker to see where they're looking, using a heart rate monitor to see how overloaded they are, things like that. These devices are all now freely available. I mean, there's a bit of a challenge getting them to work in the aviation environment, but, you know, we've got the timescales to be able to do this assessments and do this development. Emma, what's it been like for you um, getting into this realm in terms of the technology you're bringing into Tempest? Is it quite an interesting and intriguing area of technology for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, from a, from a weapons perspective, we're interested in how we can optimise the probability of success of engagements by providing the right information and the right tactical decision aids to the pilot. And through that, enabling us to get the best performance of our weapons for each threat class and within every potential environment. Um, as you say, with, with all this data that's coming in and all this um, abundance of information that the pilot's going to have access to, they are going to be better informed than ever. However, we've still got to keep in mind this overarching challenge um, around pilot workload. You know, just because we have all of this data doesn't mean that we necessarily want to show it to the pilot um, all of the time because that would just be completely overwhelming. So it's, it's really interesting to try and understand what is the right information um, to show the pilot at each point during the mission and 
and what's the best way um, to display it using all of these technologies that we're looking at. Um, and, and that's the real challenge is determining what, what they actually need to know to be able to make the best decisions um, and at what point we're actually just contributing to cognitive overload. It's one of the benefits to how we're working on Tempest um, in this really collaborative way across all the partners is that it gives us the opportunity to be involved in these key areas right from the beginning. Um, so in my role, I'm embedded into BAE Systems Future Cockpit team over at Wharton. Um, and that's giving us the ability to understand and inform how we can optimise weapons integration with both the platform and within the system of systems to give us the best possible performance. And Susie, when you look at the cockpits of the past, they really did stack it high with all these different <laughs> dials and controls. And it's amazing to think, how did a pilot manage to know what was going on? And Tempest, it really puts the pilot at the centre of a system of systems. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean in terms of the display technology you're creating? It means, again, much, much on the common theme is that there's been much more information. Um, the the, the the aircraft will not be operating as a singleton. It won't even be operating just as part of a flight. It will be operating, as you say, as a whole system of systems with support from the ground and from loyal wingmen and from you know UAVs and things like that. It will be need to be able to talk and pass and communicate this information between everybody. So therefore, that's quite a challenge for the displays. Um, as you've mentioned in the past, you know if you look at a traditional cockpit, there's lots of displays, lots of buttons, and especially given the lifetime of a fighter aircraft um, every time there's updates to the weapons or the sensors it can be quite challenging to try and find space for all this extra information um, let alone a button to be able to action something um, without a massive scale redesign, re redesign of the cockpit so what we're looking at is using augmented and virtual reality and a lot more of a software driven cockpit so that you're no longer limited by the latest um, size of TVs you can fit in your cockpit and you could essentially put displays everywhere. The helmet allows us to be able to move displays around and you can pin them to the outside world as well or move them down and put them on your knee. It's just trying to build in that flexibility and upgradability from the start really because we know that there's going to be a challenge going forward. We know that technology is moving so fast you know, the, the design on day one is not going to be the design 20, 30, 40 years later. So we're trying to build that in from the very start. And in a way, Jonathan, that's the whole crux of the challenge, that everything that you're creating today, you've got a bit of an eye on the future, haven't you? Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's, it's, it's that eye on the future that is driving much of the design work and much of the thought process that's going on at the moment. I mean, Tempest is going to be the first fighter jet that's going to use cloud-based data sharing in a, in a combat setting. And that's going to underpin the sensing and defensive abilities and allow it to draw on information collected by other aircraft in a system of systems or the combat air system or what we would refer to as the combat cloud potentially. Um, and, and you know, making the right decisions at a faster pace that that sort of thing allows um, and the functions that enable that are, are a combat advantage in their own rights. But the system of systems or the combat air system approach is also going to facilitate what we've referred to previously in terms of the performance of multiple roles simultaneously, um, roles that previously uh, would have to have been done either in a linear sequential fashion or by multiple uh, multiple other assets. And again, it, you know, it's focusing on this the system of systems or the combat air system making Tempest a, a data and decision hub 
as well as a defensive and offensive aircraft. And at the heart of the decision-making, of course, is the human being um, who's going to be using the technology. And uh, you know, pilots are often defined as stable extroverts, but even stable extroverts have bad <laughs> days. So, Susie, how are you monitoring their physiological and psychological well-being? <laughs> uh, very well put. Um, <laughs> we, we, at the moment, we're looking at a range of um, off-the-shelf or academic type of um, research-grade equipment um, to be able to understand more of this physiology, to be able to determine um, psychological state. Um, so what, we, what we've got in the lab at the moment is we've got a number of devices. So from the eye trackers I mentioned before, to um, T-shirts with heart rate variability, monitors built into them, wristwatches which can sense um, electrodermal activity and you know sweat on the skin things like that but also up into the world of brain monitoring in terms of EEG which looks at the electrical impulses of the brain and FNERS which is functional near infrared spectroscopy um, which actually looks at the oxygen use within the brain so at the moment we're using these in the lab and um, asking participants both pilots and non-pilots to come and have a go try these things on and we give them various tasks which we can manipulate the difficulty of in the background so we can set up high workload and low workload settings so that we can see if the information we're getting from these devices does indeed tally with the subjective reports from the pilot and the levels of difficulty we've set the task off. From. So we're getting really good results on this. And also, quite surprisingly, we're not getting that much pushback from the operator community. I was quite worried that they'd be very wary about being monitored. Um, but often what you'll find is that the people in these roles are very interested in how they can enhance their performance. So anything they can learn about themselves and you know where they might struggle and where they might get overloaded, they're actually quite interested in. Absolutely. And Emma, I'm assuming that the context in which they'd use your area of technology would be high stress, wouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. So um, obviously, as Susie says, we're exploring all of these new technologies which can enable us to monitor pilot states such as stress. Um, we can then use this feedback and mission analysis to understand um, the operator's ability to make decisions in specifically stressful situations. Um, and then that can help us identify some of the, the bottlenecks and then inform better design choices. While the autonomy can help by taking over some of the tasks, ultimately it's going to be the pilot who's going to maintain moral responsibility in the cockpit. So for example, in areas such as authorising the use of lethal force against a designated target, the implications of getting this wrong are pretty significant, both from a legal and an ethical standpoint. So therefore tying in these psychophysiological measures to understand when these decisions may be compromised is going to be really, really valuable. And Jonathan, do you feel that you're seeing any any content coming out from this data in terms of physiological and psychological well-being that is playing a significant role in the forward path of what you're creating right now technology-wise? I mean, not not personally in, in the current role, but from a, you know my previous life as a pilot, and clearly I had to get that in there at some point. <laughs> I'm a stable extrovert. Twenty minutes, well done. Probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, you had that. Uh, you win. Um, so previously, you know, everybody knows or, or that, that we will all become task saturated at some point. 
so you know that's that's a known fundamental that if you load people they will eventually become task saturated i think the the significant problem for pilots is actually knowing when they are task saturated um, now obviously the autonomy and the virtual assistant and all that sort of stuff that we're talking about in tempest will will raise the threshold to where pilots become task saturated however all, all that means is that we will increase the complexity of the missions that that tempest can go and do and that pilot that is sat in that tempest can, can go and do so fundamentally we will still arrive at a point where a pilot becomes task saturated letting that pilot know when they are task saturated and then assisting them to to you know to come down off that task saturation step is, is the critical part for me and that it's that whole sense of peace you get when you're observing you know the scenarios that unfold in which your technology will be used and it's such that the pilot could easily find themselves in a very challenging situation where they might be tempted to make a split second decision that's going to have far-reaching consequences so how are you embedding technology to ensure that they make the most responsible decisions possible in any given situation directing that to you Emma? Um, so there, there are a number of areas where technology can be used to support decision making in the cockpit um, and we're exploring a range of technologies to understand what the potential is in, in a range of situations. Um, for example, we've already discussed how we can use autonomy technology to bring together vast amounts of information, uh, presenting it to the operator in a meaningful and context-relevant form that they can quickly digest and respond to in an effective way. Um, also, with the, with the virtual display, we've got far greater flexibility in how we present data throughout the mission, um, and that can enable us to optimise presentation of information um, for each specific context and every pilot decision as we progress through the mission. Uh, we're also looking at different ways that technologies allow us to provide the operator with information. Uh, traditionally, cockpits are heavily reliant on visual information to communicate with the pilot. Um, however, you can quite quickly um, overload the pilot's visual channels. Um, so integrating different technologies which draw on a range of different um, presentation and interaction modalities such as uh, the eye tracking, haptics, uh, 3D audio, we can optimise how we communicate with the pilot and how the pilot can respond for a variety of different scenarios. Um, on the other hand, we're also looking at technologies such as 3D audio, virtual and augmented reality, um, and how these can help the pilot build a more accurate model of the threat environment and therefore um, improving their overall situational awareness um, within the battle space. So, so yeah, by using the technologies in the right ways, um, we can both more effectively cue the operator to situations, giving them more time to consider and respond, um, as well as providing them with the best information to help uh, then build and maintain good situational awareness, which again will give them the best chance of responding to any situation in, in an optimal way. And Jonathan, in those critical decision-making seconds, I guess you're aware of making a real effort to free up as much space as you can in terms of time and decision-making. Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes from, from preparation. So although decisions probably appear to be split-second, um, and the execution of them is generally in, in, done in a split-second fashion. Actually, the, the the process leading up to that decision, which enables the decision to be made, starts many, many um, steps before the actual decision is made. So criti critical to me is building that picture um, and 
building a rich picture that a pilot can be confident in um, to enable them to plan ahead and, and make decisions. Because if, you, if you're reactive in decision-making, that's when things start to go wrong. That's when, uh, you know, fundamentally you start to become task-saturated. Um, and from a, you know, a more warfighting stance, if you're not making decisions quick enough or as quick as your adversary is, then that's when, when you start to, start to get into trouble. So it's, it's the enabling functions that make those split-second decisions, which will continually have to be made, and, and, and everyone in the aviation community, I think, understands that, and, and the community that supports supporting the aviators. But as long as you um, get the right information at the right time, in, presented in the right manner, then those split-second decisions um, tend to be um, easier to make with with confidence, I guess is what I could say. And as Jonathan was touching on, Susie, that it's the presenting of the information in the right manager because, mm-hmm. uh, in the right manner, because I'm assuming that there can be a generational difference because you'll get some people who like the solidity and sureness of a button they're going to press, and then mm-hmm. you've got another generation coming through that are very comfortable with gaming. Exactly. Um, And this is one of the reasons, um, one of the many reasons why we're looking at what we're terming a multimodal cockpit, where we're going to use all these technologies that Emma's been talking about um, to provide the operator with different ways of operating the system. Um, And it's up to their preference or the task in hand, how they interact with the system. So some people may very much stick to the traditional HOTAS, the hands-on throttle and stick, um, whereas other people may want to use the voice or, you know, if a scenario where you're flying straight and level controlling a swarm of UAVs, you might want to move use the gesture control or something like that. I'm not saying you will be waving your arms about under 9G, uh, but in certain scenarios, <laughs> these different technologies can definitely step in and help. And yet yeah, providing that, that option there for people to use the ones that are preferable to them I mean, we have been doing work in the lab looking at the speed, accuracy, performance and indeed preference of these devices, you know, on simple tasks in the laboratory and then moving them up to more realistic scenarios as we get more, more, more understanding about what missions Tempest is going to be fighting in the future so that we can start to give advice and we can start to say this looks like it might be helpful here and this looks like it might be helpful here. But ultimately, it will be up to the squadrons and the operators themselves how they want to interface with the system and the idea is that we can keep it open as well that kind of idea of plugging and playing in new technologies as and when they emerge so you know if we're looking at the future of human augmentation if you have an eye tracker built into a contact lens or a brain control interface directly to the system it's open to be able to do that brilliant Susie Emma and Jonathan thank you very much for sharing such interesting insights today Join us again for the next episode of Future Horizons, the Tempest podcast.